So this is our favorite time of the program, the time that we hear an inspiring message. And so it is my great pleasure to introduce to you and welcome our very own message that is always inspiring, Reverend Patrick Cameron. The longing fulfilled is the tree of life. Love that. Thank you so much for being here. Lisa, Nicole, Grace, uh, you sing at a church downtown quite frequently, right? What's the name of it? C3 Metro. C3 Metro. So we're really delighted that uh, your friend Erica brought you our way this Sunday, and thank you so much. All right, so here we are. I, I, we, Laura and I went to Divine Dining last night and stayed out way too late. So we'll see how this goes. I'll say no more. All right, so I'd like to invite you. If you'd like to sing with me and and say a prayer, that'd be great. And if you'd like to stand up and do that, feel free. If not, stay seated. In this very room is what we're going to sing, and then I would like to do an affirmative prayer with you and continue to build this beautiful energy, this field of grace, like to call it. Eric Butterworth called it the power of the swarm. We come together and, and elevate our conversation around these spiritual ideas and this ancient wisdom. In this very room... Sorry, Brown... There's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear. For spirit, one spirit is in this very room, in this very room, in this very So I invite you to know with me, allowing my words to be your words, one spirit, one power, one presence, one infinite divine activity, in and through and as all of life, animating life, supplying the inspiration, the application of that inspiration on this planet, the songs we share, the fellowship, the love. Let us know that there is enough love in this room for all the world. For wherever there is a pristine doorway for spirit to express that is our opportunity to live in that oneness as often as possible and when we forget to bring ourselves back with the love and the care and the certainty so I celebrate with you in this moment that healing of any sense of separation from spirit it is in and through all of us and in knowing that I know every good thing necessary for each and every one of us to realize to be and to express is made clear our next step is made obvious and wonderful this is my declaration this is my knowing this is my offering I open myself to this and I release it I don't hang on to it I don't control it I release it I get out of the way something powerful and wonderful has its way by means of me I trust in that I live in that and I give thanks for the grace and the beauty and the joy and the celebration of life and all that that contains for me, as me, and through me, for you as well. For this I give thanks 
to stand in service to this bigger idea and this bigger possibility, this experience of love at the deepest of levels. I give thanks, and together we say, and so it is. Please be seated. So before I launch into what I want to share with you, I'm going to ask one of my favorite musicians of all time uh, to come forward and share a song with you that I think beautifully expresses what I'm going to follow up with, Mr. Brian McLeod. This song is called I Believe, and it's written by my favorite artist, Shimshai. I believe in the essence of love we are, letting go of the self we see and Look within you to be I see that heaven is a part of me And I can begin to find my way home And now I can see That I've always been what I'm looking to find Just learning to be And I know All that is shall forever be and every lesson must surely reach To the core of the inner teaching I am seeking And now that I find there's no secret meaning I can begin to find my way home Now I can see That I've always been what I wanted to be Now I am free there's no place like home is where thy heart is No place like home is where thy heart is No place like home is where thy heart is No place like home is where thy heart is No place like home is where thy heart is And there it shall be A home is where thy heart is And there can be free To dwell in the light of the one I believe Home is where thy heart is eternally Letting go of conception we hold so tight Any question of wrong or right All that is shall forever be just as it should And to fight against evil we serve no good The walls you've relied on come crumbling down now you will see Revealing the delicate center within Now you are free And looking within to find my way home Now I can see That I've always been what I'm looking to find Just learning to be there's no place like home is where thy heart is No place like home is where thy heart is No place like home is where thy heart is No place like home is where thy heart is There's no place like home is where thy heart is And there can be free to dwell in the light of the one I believe But home is where thy heart is eternally Home is where thy heart is, and there it shall be. A home is where thy heart is, and there can be free.
To dwell in the light of the one I believe A home is where thy heart is eternally And there's no place like home is where my heart is free To be within love for eternity A home is where my heart is free To be within love for eternity A home is where my heart is free Dwell in the light of the one I believe. A home is where my heart is free to be within love for eternity. A home is where my heart is free to dwell in the light of the one I believe. There's no place like home is where thy heart is. No place like home is where thy heart is. No place like home is where thy heart is, and there it shall be. A home is where thy heart is, and there can be free to dwell in the light of the one I believe. A home is where thy heart is eternally. I believe in the presence of love we are. Letting go of the self we see and look within you to be I see that heaven is a part of me I think after Lisa Nicole's song and, and Brian's song, we can go home now. So, home is where the heart is. So we have been uh, using Gina Roth's book, Janine Roth's book, "Women, Food, and God." And I know there's a book study going on. You heard about that in the announcements, and it's a wonderful book. And as I said last week to the men, just put the your finger or thumb over the W and the O, and it applies to men as well. I, I love what. Uh, she has to say in this book about how we take ourselves away from the heart and how we don't pursue our longing. A longing fulfilled is the tree of life. And we're here, we are here to celebrate our spirituality and to enhance that and to bring that forth into our lives in the most meaningful way possible. And Dr. Ernest Holmes was our founder, and he had, he had this to say about our practice. He said, one cannot be a good student of the science of mind who is filled with fear and confusion. We must keep ourselves in a state of equilibrium or balance, in a state of poise, peace, and confidence. And not from a sense of arrogance, but that is our divine nature. Our divine nature is one of peace and poise and confidence. It's just who we are. And then we have it domesticated and we move into the fear. We must be in a state of spiritual understanding, and by spiritual understanding it has not meant anything strange or unnatural, but merely that the belief in goodness must be greater than any apparent manifestation of its opposite. It is this science of faith we are seeking to uncover, a definite technique that shall conduct our minds through a process of thought, if necessary, to that place which the sublime minds of all ages have reached by direct intuition. So when we celebrate 
spirituality, when we talk about honoring all traditions, what we're honoring uh, is everyone in, in a tradition that has mined the depths of their own being into that unbroken connection with spirit. To, to live what we do in our practice is to heal the separation at the end of the day because it's very easy to feel like life is happening to us rather than through us. And it's a whole different perspective. It's the subtleties of those shifts and those awarenesses that make or break what we do. And it's not enough to know, but it is to apply it in our lives. And that's the challenge for many of us. So we forget. And so Janine Roth this week talks about never never underestimate the inclination to bolt, to leave, to exit. And we do it in many ways. And what bolting is, is it, it speaks to people that really don't want to sit in the center of their own lives. It's one thing to say you want to stop using food or whatever it is you use to numb yourself with, or alcohol or drugs or relationships, or worrying or blaming or shaming, whatever it may be. To be but she said it's one thing to say you want to stop using whatever to numb yourself, to be miserable about the size of your body, to feel as if you're killing yourself with double cheeseburgers and fries, but but slowing down and asking yourself what is actually going on when you want to eat or do whatever it is that puts yourself to sleep when you aren't hungry. And watching how you inhale three muffins before you even realize you're eating, that's going too far. There is something about accepting the unpredictable fragility of life for many of us that is just too much because life is fragile. And life, there's a fragility about life. It's just true. If we're going to be in this, if we're going to sing the song from our heart, there's a vulnerability there. When you, for an artist to get up, you know, my, I, when my father passed away, I come from a very devout Catholic family, and my uncle, Pat, who I'm named after, was there at the funeral. And so we're, we're in the back room, and the family's having a little something to eat because it was the, the viewing of my dad's body, you know, how they do that. We don't do that in our tradition, we typically, because the body is just the, the vehicle. The spirit is what's eternal. But I'll never forget my uncle Pat, who was sitting there, he'd been a devout, devout, still a devout Catholic, and he said, you know, I just love those old Catholic hymns, like, you know, Save me, Jesus, because I'm a worm in the dirt. And I just thought. (laughs) I didn't want to disagree that I didn't also want to agree. But one of the things he said after that was he said, you know, it takes a lot of courage to get up and speak your truth publicly. He, He knew what I was doing. And he said, it takes a lot of courage to do that. It takes a lot of courage to get up and sing your songs that you've written. And, and Brian came in this week, and we were, we were doing some guitar work together. And he said, I want to share this song with you. And it just brought me to tears listening to his song. And I said, well, you played it on Sunday because it fits so beautifully with what we're talking about. It's returning to oneself and returning to oneself. And we forget sometimes. And so we leave. We exit. We bolt. She said, there's many ways to bolt. We walk out the door. She talks in, in the, this chapter about wanting to rent. She went to a 10-day silent retreat. And she got there, and after a day, she realized she didn't want to be there. She'd been planning this for months. She got there, and she, so she was calling a helicopter company to come and get her. She was in the Joshua Tree Forest. Which, if you go to Joshua Tree, it's just outside Palm Springs. There's not too many trees there. They're actually big cactuses. And uh, she was talking to the helicopter pilot and saying, please come get me. And he said, well, there's no landing pad. It's going to be difficult. She said, well, whatever it costs. And he said, well, it'll be $2,500. And she said, well, forget it. I guess I'm staying. <laughs> but she shares that story at the beginning of all her retreats because we, we, we want to bolt. We don't want to be present with ourselves. And I know I share this with you because I think that's been a, a lot of my spiritual practice has been bolting my whole life. Bolting and obsession. Got those two down really well. I'm going to talk about obsession in a moment. 
But bolting is a way, as she said, to walk out the door is one way to bolt. Renting a helicopter, distracting yourself from your pain by doing a thousand different things. Thinking about something else. Blaming your mother. Blaming someone else. Getting into a fight. Comparing yourself to other people. Dreaming about life in the future. Recalling life in the past. And never getting deeply involved. Eating. Spending your life trying to lose weight or figure, out, figure it all out. Resigning yourself to the endless struggle with food or whatever it may be so you never have to take the dive into the meaning of it all or discover who you are and what your relationships can be without the drama of food or alcohol or drugs or obsessive thinking. So staying where you are with what you are feeling or seeing or sensing is the first step in ending the obsession. So stay with me. Don't bolt. Come on back. Staying where you are with what you are feeling or seeing or sensing is the first step in ending the obsession. It's easy stuff. Eckhart Tolle talks about it in his book, A New Earth. Bringing consciousness and the power of now. Bringing consciousness to the moment. Bringing awareness to the moment. Because the things we make up about it are far more scary and worse than actually having the experience. At least that's been my experience. Obsession. The gift of obsession. Obsession gives you something to do besides having your heart shattered by heart-shattering events. Like watching your children get sick. Like living while your spouse dies. Like being with your parents as they get old. Wearing diapers, forgetting their own names. Obsession gives you a a plane ticket out of a particular kind of heartbreak. It gives you a helicopter ride out of the desert. It creates a parallel world, a hologram of emotions, passions, and breathtaking reversals. It gives you the illusion of feeling everything without, without having to be vulnerable to anything. Well, that's what it does. We're, we're still feeling. We're just not feeling what's real. And I believe our job is to make the conversation real. David White, one of my favorite writers and poets, always talks about, he, there's a lecture I've shared on a DVD with a number of people, but he always talks about Camus, who was an author, French author, who said, live close to tears. It's a vulnerability. And we're not taught that. When I started to cry when I was a kid, they just, they'd, they'd punch me or slap me and Make sure I had something to cry about, which I always thought was very interesting. And the one thing I knew from that is the one thing I got from that was if I ever have children, I won't do that. So they were just, they were training me in reverse, if you know what I mean. In the drama of obsession, you are the star, the co-star, the director, the producer. Other people, even your children, are only stand-ins. They're cardboard props. When you are crazed about a binge, for example, you become so focused on getting whatever it is that you leave your child in the car, as one of my students did and forgot she was there. There is madness in obsession, yes, but its value is that it drowns out the madness of life, especially now when we are living on the verge of destroying ourselves and our environment. Not bolting, being awake without being drugged by food, alcohol, work, sex, money, drugs, fame, or in denial about the crisis we're actually in is asking a lot, and it is asking a lot. There's a lot of things happening. And she said, when she looks out in the, in the world and sees it, she says, I want my money back. I didn't sign up for this. Do you ever feel like that? Too much going on. Too much stuff happening. How do we deal with all this? How do we make a difference in the world? She said she has, she's had an obsession about her husband, Matt. She loves her husband, Matt, so much that her obsession is that she wishes he would just die so she could get over with the pain of losing him. Isn't that interesting? In my most regrets moments, seeing events through the eyes of a child, I live between fear, fearing doom and wishing for it, between worrying that Matt will die every time he walks out the door and convincing myself that I will be relieved when he does. 
But I think it speaks to us not wanting to give ourselves deeply to anyone or anything. So it'll be too painful. But we're just making up the story about pain. We don't know it's going to be too painful. It's just going to be what it is. It's going to be the experience. The belief, unconscious as it was, she says for herself, that I couldn't handle, I couldn't tolerate, didn't have, I didn't have thick enough skin or resilient enough heart to withstand what was in front of me without fragmenting. So we do this. We go to the obsession and we make up the stories because we don't think we can handle it. It's too scary for many people. We make up a story about it. She said, what I realize is that it's not all that hard that some, people, that some people, Matt and perhaps one or two more, don't see it this way. And she said, the obsession she's had with food over her life. She's this woman that says, I've lost and gained over a thousand pounds in my journey with food. It became her drug of addiction. Wouldn't have obs- she said, I wouldn't have the obsession with food if I believed that life was tolerable without it. The glitch here is that it's not life in the present moment that is intolerable. It's the pain we are avoiding that has already happened. We are living in reverse, anticipating the pain. It's not that there isn't pain in the present moment. Every day I get letters from people about just making it through the next another day. This morning I got a letter from one of my students who told me that her mother got her hair done on Thursday like she always did. And by Friday she was completely delusional and needed to be checked into a mental health facility. And she said, my father is torn apart. They've been married for 60 years, and I have no idea how I'm going to get through this. And she said, the answer to this is, I have no idea. Just to say to oneself, I have no idea, idea how I'm going to get through this. You allow yourself to sob, to heave, to feel as if your heart is a boulder crashing through it. You sit with your father, and you notice that at the end of every day, you're still alive. You ask your friends for help. You listen to his sorrow. And you notice that you don't have to use food or shut yourself down to leave your body. You actually feel more alive. And that feeling anything, even grief, is different from what you thought it would be. That when you don't leave yourself, a different life is lived. One that includes vulnerability, tenderness, and fragility. And changes the landscape. Makes it verdant, wider, and breathtaking. Or life as you know it. And so it's moving out of survival mode. At the beginning of this, I shared with you what Dr. Holmes said. As students of this teaching, one cannot be a good student of the science of mind who is filled with fear and confusion. You can't do it. To do an affirmative prayer from, from fear and confusion just adds more fear and confusion to the world. And so it's the opportunity for us, for all of us, myself included, to be present with what's going on and to feel what's going on. My experience with that is that when I'm present with what's going on and I feel what's going on, I can next, make the next best choice. Sometimes that may be silence. Sometimes it may be to make a phone call. Sometimes, and most of the time, it's, it calls me to prayer because we get trapped back into the story. We get pulled back into this idea of fear and confusion. Dr. Holmes says this about the practitioner's business. And I believe if any of us use affirmative prayer in our lives, we are, we are practitioners. They that dwell in the secret place of the Most High, etc. It does not matter so much what one says. It is what one believes when he says it that counts. Dr. Holmes said that if we're not the consciousness of, we are simply announcing it's one thing to know what to do, it's the other to do it. 
And that's why it takes practice. It takes years and years and years to learn this practice. I don't think that we train practitioners in nine months or a year and a half. We begin, we begin that process, but it requires consistency. It's, it's gradual, sequential, and inevitable. He continues, the practitioner must believe if he's going to be a successful practitioner that his word is the law that whatever whereunto it is spoken. So we activate this law with our word because everything we say is a prayer at the end of the day. But it is the consciousness of the prayer that determines the effectiveness of the prayer. It's the consciousness of the individual. It's the consciousness of the practitioner. When you don't leave yourself, a different life is lived. One that includes vulnerability, tenderness, and fragility, and it changes the landscape. It makes it verdant, wider, breathtaking. She says, when I'm afraid Matt will die every time he walks out the door. This is still part of her practice. She's written this book. She's, she's worked with over 1,000 individuals, and probably more now. You know, she was on Oprah, so she's probably sold a billion books by now. So I think it's, it's wonderful when someone has done the work and has written things down for us to sort of the breadcrumbs that they leave behind. So we have, that's what Dr. Holmes did for us. He actually threw a rope down and said, not only is this for me, but it can be for you. That's one of the wonderful things about the life of Jesus. I believe there were many great uh, ascended masters that have come down through the ages. I think what happened when Jesus came along, the consciousness of the planet was ready and this story was shared. And then the story got taken by various groups, which we always do. We take it and we put our own spin on it. But it, what he was saying at the end of the day was, it is done unto us as we believe. And how can I live the Christ-like life? How can I live that embodied Christ experience? Dr. Holmes was asked in one of the last books he read called The Essential uh, Science of Mind, I think it's called. He said, of course we're a Christian organization. Most of what we study and how, how healing uh, unfolds in the world is based on the life and the work of, of the teacher Jesus of Nazareth. But we, what, we, what we emphasize is not the great e- uh, exception, but the great example. That these things that I have done, ye shall do, and even greater. What was he talking about? So she said, when I'm afraid Matt will die when he walks out the door, I'm afraid that I won't survive without him. And when I want him to die to get it all over with, I want to stop the pain of anticipating the pain. As long as I believe that pain is bigger than me, as long as I define being open and vulnerable as being vulnerable to annihilation, I believe in an image of myself that I am someone who can be annihilated. That's why we aren't vulnerable. We believe we can be annihilated. Dr. Holmes said, if God is for us, who can be against us? And what difference does it make? But to stand in that faith and to grow that faith and the clarity... We're here to master that. The, the funny thing is we're here to master it and then we have to get out of the way. Because we don't know any of this, but something inside does know us and that's that place. That's that secret place of the most high. Home is where the heart is, as Brian just said. And our longing, our longing, I mean, I just love, I don't, isn't it great? I, I mean, I love when we can bring a variety of artists in here and celebrate their gifts and talents. I'm so grateful for today and and for Lisa, for you taking the time to be here with us, you don't know what we're doing. We could be sacrificing chickens in here for all you know. Uh, but, but, but to bring artists together and to listen to their creative expression and the, the, the everyday all-stars standing up and, and coming here early and 
they came in the middle of the night, didn't you? Or maybe 8.45, but if you did Divine Dining with me, it's like the middle of the night right now as well. But it is that longing, it is that divine discontent spirit wants to express. And as Dr. Holmes said, everything has already been created in the mind of God already. The blueprint is there. And somebody taps into it with their genius. So are we the outlet for that? But when we're so busy being resentful or protecting ourselves or shutting ourselves down because life is scary, and if we open ourselves up to vulnerability, we'll be annihilated. But the the paradox is when we open up to it, then nothing, everything bounces off like water off a duck's back. It still affects us. We still forget. She still worries about Matt dying and wants to get it over with. But she brings herself back from that thought sooner rather than later. And that's the practice. That's the practice. What did Jesus say? Seven times 70. How many times must I forgive? Seven times 70. It means a lot of times. Somebody out there with a calculator can tell me how many that times it is later. As long as I believe the pain is bigger than me, as long as I believe... As long as I define being open and vulnerable as being vulnerable to annihilation, I believe in an image of myself that I am someone who can be annihilated. And when I believe this, I bolt from different situations by engaging in various mind-altering and body-numbing activities. I shut myself down or walk out the door when pain threatens to destroy me, which is in any situation that involves another human being or whose outcome I cannot control. I live in autistic existence. But something else is happening as well. The refusal to accept and therefore engage in life as it is and the way things are, because people do get old and people get sick and people die or they die suddenly or their deaths drag on forever. My friend Tori is dying a slow, excruciating, painful death of bone cancer. Eight friends have died from, from breast cancer. Polar bears are dying. Honeybees are vanishing. The oceans are drying up. There is a part of me that wants my money back that says, I didn't sign up for this, and I don't like the way the whole thing is set up, and I won't participate. I'm taking my ball and going home. Stephen Levine, a Buddhist teacher, says the hell is waiting for somehow, somewhere different, excuse me, says that hell is wanting to be somewhere different from where you are. Being one place and wanting to be somewhere else, being constantly agitated, another word of non-accepting about the inevitable. Being in a relationship with someone and refusing to surrender to the love because you don't want to give yourself to something you will eventually lose. It takes great courage to love deeply. When people come in and they say they want the right and perfect mate, can you help me find the right and perfect mate, the RPM? So we do the prayer work, we sit down and say, yeah, what are the qualities I want? Well, I want him to be, I want him to be uh, a multimillionaire and gracious and kind and wise and wonderful and on and on. The list is on and on and on. And I'll always say, okay, and are you those things? Because like attracts like. And why would a millionaire want to be hanging out with you, I might ask? It's about embodying the consciousness. Light, there's a resonance. You meet people, you go, wow, this is fantastic. I, I understand this person. Now, you may be plugging into their dysfunction because you're operating mostly from dysfunction, but there's a resonance. Recognize that, hey, because misery loves company, does it not? Is that a hiss? That's called living in hell, refusing to love because you want the end game to be different than it is, wanting life to be different from what it is. So I'm going to share a story I didn't share at the first one. I'm probably going to go a couple minutes long here. But there was an article in the Edmonton Journal yesterday, and I don't know if you saw it. One of the three guys that started Apple computers. Anybody see that? And he was so nervous that he was going to have to go in debt. They all started. 
He got so freaked out that he was actually going to have to go into debt to make this thing happen. He sold his shares for $800. If he'd hung on to his shares, they're now worth $22 million. Let me talk to you about, a little bit about abundance, okay? Abundance is allowing other people to trust you. Anybody here have a mortgage? A couple of people. Okay, everybody else owns their house outright. Fantastic. <laughs> Part of abundance is trusting oneself and having others trust. It's a relationship. That's part of abundance. And so when people trust you to pay your bills, it's abundance. You're living an abundant life. And it doesn't mean that you stay stuck in that because then there's the, the, it is growing into the consciousness of whatever it may take for you to even live in greater freedom. But if this man could have gotten a little more comfortable with the idea of the mystery and the wonder of life, his life would probably be different. Now he lives up in the high desert, and when he gets a Social Security check, uh, he's down in Southern California or Middle California, wherever, he goes to the casino and gambles to hit the big one. But isn't it interesting? Opportunities show up in our lives, and because it makes us uncomfortable, we won't follow through because it's too risky. We might have to owe somebody something. I just think it's fascinating. If we are affirming and doing our daily prayer work, and an opportunity shows up into our lives that can either create vulnerability or an opportunity in our lives, to have spiritual practice in our lives. See, our spiritual practice isn't to, to stand around and wait for everything to line up. Our spiritual practice, especially when things look a little fuzzy, is if we're grounded in that, then the clarity has an opportunity to show up because we don't go back into the fear and confusion. Or if we go back into the fear and confusion, we bring ourselves back to home is where the heart is, to being grounded in that, in that truth of being and getting out of that separation. Because as soon as we go into fear, we're in separation. And so in, in your spiritual practice, if you find yourself in fear, what prayer do you have? This wonderful book by Ernest Holmes, if you don't have one, I shouldn't say this, there's probably three left back there. <coughs> should have this book. There's wonderful prayers in here. It explains all of our teaching in here. I control my mental household. I conquer my mental household and cast out all fear and doubt. Let my word cast out all sense of fear and doubt and let my thoughts be lifted unto him who lives within. How many of you have used that prayer today? Show of hands. No. My word has dissolved all fear within me and has cast out all doubts. Now we start with that. We start with that because that's not true for us, but that which we dwell upon, we become. It's all available to us. It's one thing to know. It's one thing to know this book is available, these prayers are available. It's another thing to get up, to carry it with us wherever we go, and when we forget, pull that out. So that's right. Ernest Holmes reminded me of this. That's the beauty of the written word. In this chapter, Janine talks about Stephen and Andrea Levine. And it's quite a touching story. I wrote, when I go through the book, I'll write gem on certain stories. And, and in it, he talks about that, that they have spent a lifetime in their ministry, written wonderful books on death and dying, and they've worked with countless people at workshops. But in their book, what has happened now for them is that Stephen, and she met them years ago in Santa Cruz in 1978, she said that now he is so frail that he can't walk or make a fist with his hands. And Andrea has leukemia and is having seizures. Each of them said they weren't afraid of dying. Each of them said, I'd like her or him to die first so she or he doesn't have to suffer dying alone when I'm gone. Gee, I thought, this is a bit different from my crazy desire for Matt to die so I can get over the pain and anxiety of anticipating his death. They want the other to die first. They are wishing for the pain of being left so that their partner will be spared the same pain. It's the opposite of bolting. 
It's walking straight into the path with the understanding that there are worse things in life than a broken heart. That something exists beyond, something that completely saturates any pain, something that holds the pain is bigger than it is. And there is no fighting with either the pain or the thing that saturates it. At some point in time, it's time to stop fighting with death. Janine says, my th- my, with death, my thighs and the way things are. And to realize that emotional eating is nothing but bolting from multiple versions of the above. The obsession will stop when the bolting stops. And at that point, we might answer as spiritual teacher Catherine Ingram did when someone asked her how she allowed herself to tolerate deep sorrow. I live among the brokenhearted. They allow it. So it's not about denying our spiritual practices and about denying a broken heart. It's being present with it. But then the beauty of what we have to offer ourselves and others is also seeing the divine in one another and healing that separation. It's not just wallowing in the broken heart, but it's having the real experience, not using affirmative prayer as spiritual bypass, but feeling it and feeling it deeply and say, what is there for me to know here? And being guided in that. And if we're in the conversation, if we're used to listening deeply and quieting ourselves and moving aside the confusion and fear so we can be effective practitioners for ourselves and one another, it's powerful. It's exactly what the teacher Jesus did and taught and lived, as did the Buddha, as did Ernest Holmes. So our opportunity is to practice and practice and practice. And if we're doing that, it's enough. Blessings.